Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Rita, your host. Again, I'm very happy to be with you today and uh, we welcome you to this great study today and thank you for tuning in with us. Uh, I would like today, before we wasting too much time, to introduce our panel and I will start with uh, Will. Uh, welcome back, Will. For quite a while we haven't got you with us here, but it's, it's so good to have you back with us. Thank you, Nick. Helen, uh, thank you for coming again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on our panel. Thank you. It's good to be here. And Lija, welcome also. Thank you. I feel privileged by the Lord to be here. Len is um, taking care again of this uh, study. He's our facilitator. And Len, uh, thank you for um, coming along and preparing this uh, study. We are going to have quite a few interesting things today, but by God's grace, we'll, um, we'll do our best to deliver the message for today. I'm looking forward for what you have prepared. Thank you for coming again. Yes, thanks, Nick. And hello, listeners. Last week we studied Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and here John was given a vision of the throne room in heaven where he saw God the Father seated on the throne with glorious colours emanating from himself and surrounding the throne. Also surrounding the throne were seats, sometimes called thrones in different versions of the Bible, occupied by 24 elders and nearer the throne, four living creatures. They all bowed down and praised God as creator. God the Father held a scroll sealed with seven seals, and John was dismayed that no one was worthy to open the scroll which contained the record of the great controversy, especially of how God has dealt with the sin problem. But to John's relief, someone was worthy. It was the lion of the tribe of Judah who looked like a slain lamb. He, that was Jesus, was worthy. And the elders and the living creatures bowed down and praised him. This week we're going to be studying about the opening of the seals of this scroll. I'd like to mention at this stage that sometimes visions were given to people like Daniel in different ways to explain the same situation. John was also given a vision about the seven churches and this week it's about the seven seals and there are many parallels between those two. So, as I said before, this week from Revelation chapter 6 we're studying about the opening of the seals on the scroll. But before we go any further, we're going to have prayer. Will, thank you. Lord, as John has seen in vision, the desperation surrounding nobody seeming worthy to open up the scroll, we thank you, Lord, that uh, Jesus Christ, as a slain lamb, had stepped forward and was accounted worthy to open up the future and reveal it to mankind. Salvation history, so pertinent to our lives today. And so as we study about this salvation history, right down to the end of time in which we live, I pray that you will bless our study today. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Yes, thank you, Will. All right, Will, we're talking about the opening of the seven seals. 
But before we go any further, what do these seals represent? A seal actually represents a sign of authority. We know that the kings are sealing their messages in a letter with their ring pressing on the envelope which uh, has an, an wax and the image of the ring is impressing in the wax. It means that message is sealed. Nobody is allowed to open until reaches the destination. So seals in the Bible records of scenes in the great history of the great controversy and successive stages of the history of the church on earth uh, with both a specific and a general application. All right, thank you very much. Yes, we have the history of the Christian church in various eras and the seals represent that, at least the opening of the seals. Our first text for today is Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I'd like to read that, if I may. Um, Lynn, I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So what's the significance of a white horse? Well, white is usually a symbol of purity, of righteousness. It's usually associated with Christ and his followers. And um, I think it's a beautiful picture, if you like, of Christ who was overcomer. He was the conqueror. And um, I believe this shows that he also had a, a, um, a bow, as you noticed, and he also had a crown. And I think the bow reminds me a lot of the image of God in the Old Testament, you know, conquering his people's enemies. And also the crown, of course, showing that he was the victorious ruler. Yes. The conqueror. Yeah. Mm. Back in the times when cavalry was part of a battle, Usually the commander, and I have pictures in my mind of Napoleon, mm -hmm. on a white horse. He was the commander. And when, um, when the battle is done and the cavalry goes back to wherever they came from, usually the commander would be leading the, the troop on his white horse. And here we have a picture of Christ leading his people victoriously I think that can give us hope too, uh, Len, when we think that he is our commander and we also can be overcomers when we are associated with him. Yes. Significantly too is that uh, this crown doesn't only represent authority, but if you look in the, uh, in the Greek language, it indicates that um, the word Stephanos, crown, is actually um, talking about um, victory and overcoming uh, so it's a it's a different crown to just the authoritarian crown that is worn by a king in a kingdom also I'd like to just mention that um, you see Jesus entered in Jerusalem riding a donkey and here is he's portrayed riding a 
on a white horse. Very significant, actually, because um, when he entered in Jerusalem, always a king riding a donkey represents that he came in peace. But when he rides a horse, he came from a battle. He came victorious. And this is Jesus who won the battle once and for all. And he's victorious. And also the seals, very interestingly, how, how this parallel, Lenny just said a bit early, with the message to the seven churches, because the seals also represents in Ezekiel, for example, if you go in the Old Testament, judgments. And when this book was given to John, revealed to the history, the future of God's people. And very, very interesting. We may come uh, during the study to, to emphasize a little bit more on these aspects. In actual fact, although we picture Jesus on the white horse, it's actually representing also the church, the Christian church, mm-hmm. in its early days where it was pure, unadulterated by false doctrines and things like that. So we mustn't forget that. Actually, the the scene of the first seal describes the spread of the gospel, which started powerfully at Pentecost. Through the dispensation of the gospel, Christ began expanding his kingdom. There were and still are many territories to win and many people who have yet to become followers of Jesus before the ultimate conquest is realized with Christ's coming in glory. Yes, thank you. And I think we need to realize here that the white horse and its rider as conqueror refers to the church in, shall we say, the first century after the church was formed. Now we're introduced to another scene. Well, the second seal is opened, and uh, Revelation chapter 6 and verses 3 to 4 has the um, depiction. It says, When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see, another horse fiery red went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword well this is a bit of a different scene going from a white horse and a victor but here a red horse now of course we have to realize that this is symbolic why a red horse what's special about that Well, red, this uh, might depict blood, bloodshed. And if we take a look at history, we see that uh, following um, the beginning of the establishment of the the church, uh, persecution came and uh, a lot of bloodshed was the result. So God is talking here about a period of time following the first church, where there is uh, where there is trouble trouble in the land mm. i think i think it's interesting that the first horse depicted christ and the church in its purity as you said lean but here we've got a totally different picture if you like and it reminds me of satan who was called the red dragon was he not mm-hmm. yes and so for me it's like you've got goodness of christ and the pure church and now you've got evil coming in you know, which causes the persecution, if you like, mm-hmm. you know. The second seal describes the consequences of rejecting the gospel, actually. 
at the beginning of the second century, as Christ is waging spiritual warfare through the preaching of the gospel, the forces of evil render strong resistance. You know, inevitably, persecution follows purity, doesn't it? Mm. The rider does not, uh, the rider, you'll note, doesn't do the killing. Instead, he takes peace from the earth. And uh, as a result, persecution inevitably follows. I think if we go back to the churches, as um, Nick was saying and Lynn was saying, we, we can actually link this in, if you like, to the second church, the church at Smyrna. Uh, that was right, wasn't it, the second church? Okay, and it was conflict that came on the earth. And if you look at that, that was roughly, I think they say, AD 102-8313. But it was a time of severe Roman persecution and intolerance of the Christians. And, and I find the parallels are very, very interesting mm. to see that. Yes, uh, it's worth noting here that this was Roman persecution. Mm. First the Romans accepted Christianity and then they didn't. Now as many of you have probably heard about throwing Christians to the lions and the Colosseum and so on, it was a devastating time for Christianity right then. And so this is represented by the red horse. Is this any way, in any way a warning to those who reject the gospel today? Yes, it is, because if you reject God's word, you will receive the reward later on. So um, those people who, who will ultimately uh, reject the word of God, reject Jesus, they will be destroyed also by yes, God. Yes, yes. Now, we move on to the next one, and we're reading from Revelation chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Uh, would you mind reading that, Helen? Again, from the New King James Version, it says here, uh, verse 5 and 6, When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So what are the visuals here? Well, well, we've got a black horse for a start, and um, that's not a very good colour, is it? It's, it's it, from this point of view, with the, the what it represents. And we've also got um, scales, if you like, or balances. Uh, I, I find this very interesting because, it, it to me, it, it was like mixing Christianity with paganism. You know, weighed in the balances and found wanting. Um, we were told back in Daniel, and then then we've we've also um, got. I should actually have said before that the black can equate also to the absence of the word of God, mm. and I, I think that was an important thing I'm, I should have mentioned before: mm, yes. darkness, absence of light. And just I want to go back just a little bit to kind of uh, connect these two things with the withdrawal of the. Um, Spirit of God, if you like, and was mentioned to the second seal that uh, the horseman was not necessarily killing, but he was withdrawing from uh, from the earth, and the killing started. And that's interesting because that can be associated with the withdrawal of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, then people are not uh, interested, or they don't have a knowledge of the Word of God. And it's very important, that, as you, Helen, just pointed out that in this period of time it was a lack of knowledge about God 
dark ages, uh, if you like. We observed here in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verse 6, we observe metaphorically speaking. So it says that uh, a black horse holds a scale for weighing food. So a quart of wheat for a day's wages. A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. So it says that in the in that part of the world, on that time, grain, oil and wine were the basic necessities of life. And uh, to eat bread by carefully weighing the grain denoted great scarcity of famine. So in John's day, a denarius was a daily wage. Uh, but in normal circumstances, a daily wage would buy all the necessities for the family for that day. However, if a famine would enormously inflate the normal price of food in the scene of this third seal, it would take a whole day's work to buy just enough food for only one person. So in order to feed a small family, a day's wage would be uh, used to buy just three quarts of barley, a, a cheaper meal for people. So we have to understand this uh, metaphorically uh, speaking that here it's denoted to be a famine. Okay, well this uh, uh, preempts the next question I was going to ask, but we'll just highlight it. My Bible says a quart of wheat for a day's wages, a quart is around about a litre, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Barley was obviously cheaper. Was that a good deal, Will? Oh, it's clearly there is, uh, it's a time of scarcity, of famine. And um, the Bible is talking far more of just a real grain here. He's talking about a time of, um, after the persecution of um, the lack of the scriptures and the bread and the word of God. As Amos would say later, that um, it was just... Uh, people would look for the word of God and it would not easily be found so that's how I see as we'll just uh, parallel that with the lack of the word of God we are experiencing even today in uh, our time when uh, you know knowledge is so you know increased and uh, if we are not connecting with God and knowing his messages to us we may suffer if you like spiritual malnutrition Oh. Right now, yeah, I like that expression, spiritual malnutrition, and that's what it was back then. Now, when was this period of time in the Christian Church? This would cover the um, approximately um, 313 AD to 538, when uh, Christianity became legalized. Okay, so it's also like we did with the seven churches. It covers that same period of time, but it adds more information. You've got something to add here, I believe. Yes. The scene of the third seal points to the future consequences of rejecting the gospel, beginning in the fourth century, as the church gained political powers. So if the white horse represents the preaching of the gospel, the black horse denotes the absence of the gospel and the reliance on human traditions. Now, in the verse 6, in the end of the verse 6, it says, Do not damage the oil and the wine. 
grain in the Bible symbolizes the word of God, which says in Luke 8, uh, 11, and the rejection of the gospel inevitably results in a famine of the word of God, similar to the one prophesied in, in Amos. So oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit, and wine symbolizes the salvation of Jesus Christ. So really what that was saying is, okay, the world starved for the knowledge of God and for the word of God. However, there was some true knowledge preserved during those times of spiritual drought. And this is what I believe the oil and wine is referring to. Yes, it symbolizes here, even when the word of God is scarce, the Holy Spirit is still at work and uh, uh, salvation is still available to all who seek the truth of the Lord. Yes, it's an encouragement to me to know no matter how deep the darkness, God has always reserved for himself mm. a light that, uh, that the darkness could not overwhelm. And it's that light which people sought out that were really seeking God. And uh, God never allows the truth or his word to be completely overshadowed by evil. And uh, we should take courage by that. Even in our daily lives when uh, darkness presses upon us, we can allow the light of the gospel and the light of Jesus to shine through that darkness to lift us out of difficulty. Yes, we have also been told by Jesus, ye are the light of the world, mm. and may we dispel that spiritual darkness that overcomes the world. If I can just make a, a short comment here, do you reckon are we living in a similar uh, situation when the darkness, you know, in, in this world is so big, you know? Are we called then to, to bring the gospel, to encourage people to look in the word of God, to get that light from God to be able to stand in these days? Because it's a big confusion, even though, as, as I mentioned a bit earlier, we think that we are the most uh, elevated uh, and uh, knowledgeable uh, generation in the world, I mean, in, in the history of the world, I think we're lacking the very basic knowing God. If you ever watch a program like Millionaire Hot Seat and so on, and I find this fascinating, and a question is asked that um, the answer is from the Bible, what I notice is most people haven't got a clue, which kind of suggests that the world is in spiritual darkness. And the Bible actually describes it as gross darkness. Well, so far we've uh, considered the early church being symbolized by the white horse in the first century, the red horse symbolizing the persecution that the early church went through during the second and third centuries. And then we have this black horse going through to the probably the fourth and fifth centuries. Now we come to another one, and this of course represents a time period too. Will, would you share with us Revelation chapter 6 verses 7 and 8? Yes, this is opening the fourth seal now and uh, predicting widespread death on the earth. Um, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it 
was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over the fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. It's a pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? Yes. And, and this, these riders, there are two riders. There was death and Hades. Hades, of course, represents the grave. What did they do? They killed, massacred, punished. To what extent? What does the Bible actually say? Well, the Bible talks about uh, a fourth of the earth here. Uh, is that a pretty big number or not? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, there's probably a lot of interpretations of what a fourth of the earth could be, but whatever it means, it, uh, it does depict that millions of people died as a result of their um, holding to the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, does history support that? I believe it does, and I believe that's a time period which we used, to, well, which we call the Dark Ages. Uh, this also links in again with with the churches. You know, I think it was Thyatira, which came up at that time. And I, I find this so fascinating because in Revelation there there is a principle there which is coming through. It's repetition and enlarging. You know, you 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 have a picture of the the uh, seven churches, and here it's enlarged even more when we get to the seals and so on and so forth, as we go th you know through the trumpets later and what have you. So I find that extremely interesting. But you know, there was a time in the churches at Thyatira that symbolised the condition of Christianity from AD 538 to 1565, and during that time, the danger to God's people didn't come from outside the church; it came from within. Tradition literally replaced the Bible. And I, I found that interesting too because it was a pale horse. And when something is pale, coming from a nursing background, it, usually the blood has gone, you know. And this, this to me was like the blood of Christ. The love of Christ was missing. Mm. And instead there were traditions and works came in as a means of salvation and it was the beginning actually of the protestant reformation well yes up to that point of time yeah. that's right yeah and that was a very good point helen uh, mentioning that uh, they lost the blood actually mm. that they lost the power interesting enough that uh, it's mentioned here that um, only a fourth of the earth was affected which means again God is in control. Mm. God has uh, authority, you know, even over the um, death and Hades, as you pointed out there. And I believe, even through the Dark Ages, even though the um, people of God, they uh, could not visibly or physically really express their uh, beliefs in God, in underground, if you like, there are lots of people there hold on tight on Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and you see during the reformation how uh, many people and, and from even authorities they come in support to, to support the reformation because they have something there but as you mentioned there it was overwhelmed with the tradition and with the teachings of men okay so this period of the dark ages the last 400 years of the Dark Ages was a particularly bad time. At that time, the Inquisition was commissioned 
and I've read stories by secular authors about the terrible times that Christians underwent then. I, I would just like to mention too, or, or to comment on the fact that, you know, the words death and Hades were there. And when we're talking about different traditions coming into the church, I, I actually believe that that was the time when people became very frightened of death because they brought in the doctrine of purgatory. And, um, you, you know, it's death, death is a beautiful doctrine in the Bible. You know, it says that we're asleep. And we're not being punished forever and ever. But that was how some people were being taught in this time of persecution. Yes, thank you, Helen. Now, we've heard about the persecution of God's faithful people. Who was behind that persecution? I know this is fairly... Well, it's supported by history, and we're just stating it on air. Will? Well, there's no doubt uh, that if you follow this chronologically right from the time of Ephesus and through the churches, you get into a period of a power that uh, caused a lot of death and um, killing of many, many Christians. And uh, you've mentioned the word Dark Ages. We know about the Reformation. We know about the Protestant Reformation where, where Luther spoke against that power at the time. And it was at that time... The, the papacy. The papacy was in charge. The Roman Catholic Church that had um, executed people by their millions. Yes. It's an unfortunate part in our history, but history is history. Yes, you can't alter it. It is. Now we come to the fifth seal. We leave the horses behind and we have a different scene presented. Lydia, would you read Revelation 6 verses 9? 10 and 11 please when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar uh, the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained they called out in a loud voice how long sovereign Lord holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Now here is it's talking about the souls. If we read Genesis 2, 7, chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living soul. So a soul is a person, it's a human being. And uh, here in these verses we observe that the souls under the, the altar refers to saints who have died. The dead are, we know that it, the dead are in the grave waiting for Jesus' return. So the altar was uh, a place in the Old Testament where sacrifices were made and um, these people that had been slain uh, and were waiting for the Lord to judge everyone and uh, avenge them. Okay, now some people have used this text mm. to support the concept that when a good person dies, they go up to heaven. How do you see this? panel is this a good doctrine or do you think it's false doctrine Leach has already made some comments there 
All right, that's, um, as you just pointed out, Len, uh, it can be very sensitive, but very simple in this way. For example, God came to Cain and said to him, the blood of Abel is shouting to me. I mean, it is like, uh, now, was that uh, the soul of Abel or no? God used an expression, you know, that you kill an innocent man. Mm. And that blood is shouting out to me now. And I'm coming here to to do the right thing. Now, if you look in this verse, because it says that the souls under the throne there, uh, mentioning that, which will imply, some people say, oh, you see, the souls are there in heaven. But the next verse, interesting enough, it says this. I'm reading from um, verse 11, second part. And the advice was that they had to wait until the complete number of the Lord's other servants and followers. What that means? They were in the graves, actually. And they were waiting there in the graves until the completeness of the saints. And then when God come and uh, bring the judgments. I, I find that interesting when you brought up Cain, the, the story of Cain and Abel, Nick, because Cain also had a period of waiting. Um, Abel's blood was not avenged that day. There was a period of waiting. And I think if we take it even further, Cain ended up with a mark. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of symbolism through this. It's very, very interesting. Yes. Mm. Like many of these studies, we need a lot longer than just yeah. one hour. Absolutely. But I would like to say this, and I'm reading from verse 10. It says, These souls under the altar called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Now, if these people, these souls, were already in heaven, why would they worry about vengeance? Mm. If they were already there, they would be in paradise. Nothing to worry about. Everything's fine and dandy. So, to me, this is not a proof text at all to say that the uh, when a person dies, a good person dies, that they go straight to heaven. I believe this is a false doctrine. I am. I, I agree with you there. I would just like to share with you a few words that, in in thoughts along these lines, where the martyred saints were given white robes representing Christ's righteousness, which leads to vindication. His gift to those who accept his offer of grace, and then they were told that they would have to rest until their brothers who would go through a similar experience are made complete. It's important to notice though that the Greek text of Revelation 6.11 does not have the word number in the original. Revelation does not talk of a number of the martyred saints to be reached before Christ's, Christ's return, but of completeness regarding their character. God's people are made complete by the robe of Christ's righteousness, not their own merit. And we can read that in Revelation 7, 9 and 10. The martyred saints will not be resurrected and vindicated until the second coming of Christ and the beginning of the millennium. Mm. So what era of the church does this actually refer to? Well, the scene of the fifth seal applies historically to the period uh, leading up to and following the Reformation. We know during which millions were martyred because of their faithfulness, as we have said. It also brings to mind the experience of God's suffering people throughout history, from the time of Abel until the time 
when God will finally avenge the blood of his servants. So this area, actually, this period covers uh, the Reformation. Yeah, the Reformation following. And on. Onwards, yes. And, and just uh, going back just a little bit on, uh, on that aspect of um, the, the souls in heaven, uh, imagine this, because this is referring uh, them to wait until the completeness of the n- number of God's people, which refers again to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if those souls will be in heaven and Jesus wouldn't come, what will be the, the situation? Because the reward is going to be given to everyone when Jesus Christ comes and establish his kingdom. I mean, for them in heaven, if those souls are in heaven, is not a need over the second coming of Jesus Christ. They can happily live there in heaven forever. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But there is a sort of a uh, another follow-up false doctrine that when Jesus comes, he's going to bring those so-called souls or spirits with him and they will reunite with their bodies I think some of our bodies are not worth reuniting with to be honest <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then it'll all be nice and the Bible doesn't actually say that Will, what were the main features of this period of time within the church you've sort of stated it but I'd like that to be reiterated Well, the papal dominance of the time, um, including its intolerance to the open study of Scripture, which really triggered the Protestant Reformation, it was um, a stronghold on, well, it was a strong hand over everyone. It was a control, and um, the reaction against the persecution the Protestants uh, posed and um, Opposed martyrdom as well to form the um, Reformation. Ledger, why were God's true people slain? It's actually mentioned in those texts that were just read. Yes, in Revelation 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 9, says that because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, so to keep your testimony, to maintain your testimony and to be a witness, it's part of persecution. I've been persecuted in uh, communism Romania when I grew up and uh, I studied and uh, I I was looking for a job because um, I had to work on Saturdays and I couldn't keep, uh, I couldn't actually perform my job because I had to go to work on Sabbath and to go to school on Sabbath on Saturdays and I was persecuted so I was, I was at, a, at a young age I, I suffered persecution. Yeah, you know from the first opening of the first seal to the opening of the fifth is a period of around about 2,000 years. And you just highlighted something, Ledger. Why is it that God's people experience so much suffering and opposition? What's behind that? Why? Usually Christians are good people. They don't um, break the law. Why is it that they seem to come in for persecution. What's behind it? It's a controversy between good and evil, God and Satan. Yeah. It's, so it's Satan that's it's behind Satan. it. Yes. Satan wants dominance, and he couldn't dominate Christ. Christ defeated him at the cross. So he goes after God's people. Helen. 
I, I actually am finding this study really, really interesting because Satan will continue to go over to attack God's people right to the time of Christ's coming. And and I believe these seals are ongoing. You know, they're they're we're we're experiencing in, in some countries even worse than others persecution as we've already talked about with some of the seals. But I'd like to to actually present a scene that is powerful and spectacular. But it also talks about cosmic disturbances and it's in Revelation six twelve onwards. And again I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind I'd just like to stop there for a moment because we're talking about signs here signs in the heavens cosmic disturbances and I think if you go through history and correct me guys if I'm wrong but I, I believe that this was a period through um, the Sixth Church, 1798 to 1844. I believe that, that the history says that there was a dark day. There was a um, dark day when the sun went down. I think it was 1780. There was a when the moon was darkened, and that was in 1755. And people talk about the Lisbon earthquake. They talk about stars falling in the history books in 18. 18- 33 and and this i find this extremely interesting but it was just before another event and verse 14 starts to bring it in and it comes up and says the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of place here we're starting to talk about the return of our savior Mm. and you can support that from yeah. the actual words of Jesus himself. Well, let me just let me just open the Bible to that. In and I'm glad you brought that up, Len. In Matthew, if we flip over to Matthew 24, 29 to 30, it says here, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven. Haven't we just mentioned that? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Mm. This time has been described as a time of great distress. Great distress to whom? To those who are disobedient. I'd like to suggest um, that's right. And possibly also for those who have been obedient, wondering if if they've been good enough. Mm. Now, I realise that opens up a can of worms about faith by works and not faith by trusting what Jesus has done. But I think this will be probably a time for both. But of course, one group, one group are going to be destroyed and the other are going to be saved. Mm, uh, I hear what you're saying there too, Lynn. And sometimes one of one of Satan's tools, uh, which he used back in the Garden of Eden, is doubt. And when we start to doubt and doubt God and His promises, it it can take us along a wrong track. It can take us to the point where we get to denial of Him, and then denial becomes virtually atheism in the end and and we need to keep so close to God every moment of the day that Satan cannot 
put his claws into us and into yeah. our mind. Perhaps I could mention, uh, Len, that um, we, we've mentioned we've mentioned things like uh, meteoric showers and uh, the moon becoming blood and the stars falling, the f- as well as an earthquake and a dark day, and so on. These things were just not events, just casual events. In fact, it was so real to the people at the time that uh, we must remember that history tells us that at this time it was the beginning of a great religious revival. Clearly these events and the people's interpretation of these events from scripture, seeing them historically fulfilled, caused a great uh, reformation and a great uh, revival. And uh, we see that happening, of course, at this time. I was just going to mention something similar, uh, like what you you said. Uh, well, I'm thinking about these things: stars fallen, earthquake, dark days. Interesting. Now, when we talk about the stars in uh, history, and particularly in a, from a spiritual point of view, haven't we heard about the during the time of Reformation about the stars? You know, through the reformers, you know, coming up, the word of God was again brought to the attention of the people. But after that period of time, after the Reformation period, the boom of the Reformation, there was a period of falling back. And that period was, you know, if I'll give you just an example, during the French Revolution, times when the motto was, do as you please, you know? And that was the darkness, if you like, falling back again. Now, the stars were start, uh, starting to fall because most of those reform churches, to say so, they start to compromise. Mm. Uh, and if I would like to just mention, for example, even Lutheran uh, church or uh, reform church and so on and so on, they started to, to fade. But And that was the time uh, we mentioned in the um, uh, 1800s, the time of the great disappointment through the Millerites. And you see, all these things, you can see the application, uh, how the Bible foretold all of these things before, that if we are into the Word of God, we'll be able to depict and to understand the time we live in. And Helen, earlier, or uh, Len, you asked about who's behind all of this suffering. Of course, it's Satan, and, and the Bible says that he's like a roaring lion, you know, to devour it, because he knows that he has just little time left and he will increase all his attempts of uh, deceiving us and uh, make it hard for God's people. Now, the Apostle Paul had something to say about this in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 to 10. Would you mind reading that for us, please? Yes. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. So, two things. 
God is going to do at this time for his people and those who opposed his people? What are they? He will pay back to those who have troubled his people and also the second one, he will give relief to those who were troubled. Now we come across something here in these verses which gets a mention and I just want to highlight this. It talks about the people who opposed God or rejected God, those who troubled God's people. And in verse 9 it says they will be punished with what does your Bible say? Everlasting Anna? destruction. Everlasting destruction. And shut out from the presence of the Lord. Right. Just those two words there. Uh, yours and mine agree. They're legit. What does your Bible say? That expression in verse 9. Will? Who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Everlasting destruction. Now... Helen, do you have that text there too? The same as what's already been said. Everlasting yes. destruction. Yes. Does that mean it's complete or continuing? Oh, it's complete. If it's destroyed, it's destroyed. That's right. Which really uh, opposes, doesn't opposes, but it puts a, a truth about what happens to the dead. Mm. We were talking about the saints before and the uh, false doctrine about people when they die going up to heaven, here it puts um, a light on this uh, concept about the dead being con continually punished in an ever-burning hell. Everlasting destruction says to me, when they are destroyed, they are destroyed, finished, full stop. Yeah, there's no consciousness once you're de destroyed, that's for sure. No. Okay, so we've had a look at Revelation 6.10, and now we've looked at First Thessalonians, verses 6 and 7. What connection is there between those two references? Well, Revelation 6, verse 10, and Second Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, gives us the assurance that God's judgment is sure and will be executed. Yes, things are not going to go on like they are and have been forever. God, God is going, going to step in and pull the plug. And isn't that the cry of uh, the people today just looking around and, and asking that question for how long this will still going in this way? Even people who don't believe in God, they don't have a, a, a relationship with God, they can see that this world is not going into the right direction. They could see that something is really happening. And God is assuring us again. God is assuring his people it's not long. It's not long until he will come and sort it out. I have a great discussion. I'll just very briefly, I will mention this with um, one of our listeners who's not a believer in God, but he'd like to listen, you know, to, to the programs. He called himself an atheist. And he will say, where is that God, Nick, who allows all sorts of things happening in this world? Like, And he will mention all sorts of things, you know, like rapes and uh, crimes and all. And there is a God, he should act now and sort out these problems. And I answered him in this way. You know what? That will happen. 
But would you believe in that God who will sort out these problems? Because he will sort it out. And it's not going to be long until he will come and really put an end to all this uh, suffering and crying. I think the feeling is mutual. Um, There are millions of people all over the world that are struggling with the thought of uh, justice not taking place. Why is God not doing anything? And um, I think we find comfort in the scene, in in the opening of this, the the fifth seal, that God will one day do justice. He will execute justice and it will be done properly. Yes. Helen, would you read the last three verses right to the end of the chapter, chapter 6? I, I shall do that. Yes, that's Revelation six fifteen and 16. This comes to a bit of a crescendo, I believe. Uh, reading from verse 15, it says, And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So which strata of society is this talking about? Well, I believe it's talking about people from all different walks of life. You know, it's mentioned different people from different walks. And I believe it's people who've acted unjustly, but more importantly, those who've rejected salvation through Jesus Christ. Mm. Now, there's a question right at the end. It says, who can stand? Well, there's got to be an answer to that question. What's the answer? Well, let me just read first that that verse 17 says, For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? I think that's such an important question. I believe it's those that will go through the judgment. They will stand up like an army. But I'd like to bring the Bible answer to that, if I may. Revelation 14, verse 12. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God. And the faith of Jesus. They are the ones who will stand. They are the ones who will be given eternal life. You know, listeners, Revelation is not just a study of mysterious symbolism. Today's study has been about the church since the apostolic days. The study is also a challenge to us and to you. Jesus is coming again, and that's soon. If you're faithful, despite what injustices you may have had to face, you will be given eternal life. It's a promise of God. If you're unfaithful, God's wrath will be poured out on you. I want to say to you, make the right choice to be part of God's people, the remnant, who will, with Christ, be able to stand and will be rewarded for their faithfulness. We've reached the end of the study. I hope you've enjoyed it. Ledger, would you like to close this time with prayer? Yes. Glorious Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity that you opened to us, an open door to know more about the beautiful reward that you can give to those who are responding to your call. Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask you to bless us, to bless all those who hear your message and uh, send your Holy Spirit in every heart 
to touch their hearts, to call to the hearts of people to come to you, to choose the right side, to choose the truth, to choose you, to choose the love of Jesus in order to be saved, in order to to live eternally with you. Please, Father, as we live on this earth now, pour your light through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and uh, your wisdom to understand these symbols in which you talk to us and in which you reveal us your truth. And help us, Father, through the power of of your Holy Spirit to make the right choice to stand up with you. Father, we thank you so much for your love towards us, for Jesus' love that he came us on earth to save us. Father, we love you. We would love to be with you eternally. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, uh, panel, for um, this uh, discussion and uh, looking forward for next week. Uh, Until then, I would like to just uh, wish our listeners uh, God's blessings and keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus.